Um, anyhow, good to be back here in Mission Viejo once again, and um, we're gonna, it's going to be great. So let's, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll talk about what God wants to talk about. Jesus, we thank you that you meet us here. We thank you that this is a place of very real people. We thank you for an opportunity to laugh and to be ourselves. We thank you that even with things like the power lift or whatever else it is that we might do, we might laugh a little bit and relax. Jesus, we thank you that you are already in our midst, and we pray, God, that you would meet us here. God, would you meet us in the place where we're the most desperate? Would you meet us in the place, God, where we're the most excited and most full? But God, whatever, however you might meet us, would you meet us, you, with nothing else? God, we want to be people who are moved and motivated and captivated by you. Would this be a time, Jesus, in which you challenge us to rethink our present way of living? Will we come back to you? We turn to you for the first time, God, and would you in some way, God, show up in such a way that we can only attribute it to you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we, the, if you've been with us for a while, Mariners just wrapped up a series on Ephesians, and now we're kind of in between a couple things. And in two weeks, we'll start a whole series on John three sixteen, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. But this is where we are now. And what I want to do is this. I have to warn you first is that what we're going to talk about today is not super comfortable this isn't the like, you know, ever, all my wind, the wind is just in my sail, kind of uplifting kind of deal. I just want to warn you right now. It's one of those messages that, you know, as a pastor, you look at and you look at me, you go, do we, did we have to have this in the Bible? And do we really, I mean, really, can we just not talk about this? And could it be, could it be something else? Um, I want to tell you that I think it's going to be, it's really beautiful and rich and a powerful story. And it takes place in the middle of another really great story, but it will be, um, it will cause you a little bit of discomfort. So however you need to Ready yourself for that. I don't know, whatever it is that you do, do that, because here we go. So here's what I want to do. Um, before we start, or actually sort of to start, what I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes. Some of you are like, I don't trust you, you're not my pastor. Just trust me. Close your eyes, I'm going to throw things at you. What I want you to do is this, I want you to work, we're, on, we're at Labor Day weekend, it's the end of summer, fall is, you know, I mean, it's right here, you can stop wearing your white shoes or whatever it is you're supposed to do at the end of Labor Day, but close your eyes. What I want you to do is this, I want you to imagine the best possible life that you can for yourself. Just for a moment. And I want you to imagine a scene. Don't imagine a chalkboard with words on it. Imagine a scene. What does it look like? Who's there? Where are you? How difficult is that life? What is required of you in that scene, in that life? What are the expectations upon you in that place? Some of you are reading a book in a cabin. Some of you are imagining yourself next to a body of water. Some of you are playing. Some of you are relaxing. Some of you who are young parents are just asleep. (laughs) Keep your eyes closed for a second. How much is required of you in that space? How much, what kind of things do you need? What if God never intended us to have that life? Even more so, what if the scariest thing was that God would do everything to keep us from that life? A life imagined in which we don't even need him. 
open your eyes. For 400 years, the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt. Every day they'd make bricks, and they'd make more bricks, and the Pharaoh would demand, the Pharaoh, the religious, or the, the sort of Egyptian leader, the, the king, he would say, we need, and who's also in the Egyptian pantheon, he's also a god, and he would say, we need more bricks, and the slaves would make bricks for 400 years. Every day they'd make bricks. And there is this prayer that goes out from the Israelites to God who say, we're your people, rescue us, take us to a life of freedom. And God says, I'm going to rescue you, and I'm going to take you to this place called the promised land. And they probably imagined something that looked a little similar to what we all kind of had in our head in their own version of it. It'd be a place without slavery. It'd be a place without bricks. It'd be this wonderful place, the Bible says, they imagined of milk and honey. And they looked forward to this thing with such enthusiasm. And then if you know the story, <clears throat> excuse me, Moses and, and his sort of buddy uh, Aaron come in there and they have this conversation and they begin to talk to the, the Pharaoh and they lead the Israelites out of, out of Egypt, out of captivity, into the desert. And they walk in the desert for 40 years, the Bible says. And in the last year of their, their journey, they have this encounter, which is where we're going to be today. If you want to turn your Bible to Numbers 21, we're going to start there. But Moses confronts the Pharaoh. They walk out into the, into the desert. There's this sort of miraculous encounter. Some of you have heard of this or even seen it in various forms in Hollywood. You've seen the animated version of this story. Or perhaps you've seen the, the, the sort of Charlton Heston version as well. But when people walk into the desert in the Bible... They, there is an understanding, the people who would read the Bible, people walk into the desert, the only thing that's in the desert was nothing. There's nothing there. There's no food. You don't, no one goes to the desert to like ride a mountain bike. No one goes to the desert to sort of hang out. It's just miserable. So the only thing that's in the desert when people go to the desert is God. And the original readers would read this sort of story of people going into the desert. The assumption is, is oh, oh, they're going to the desert. They're going to meet with God. At some point along this journey, they're going to meet with God. And so the Israelites have this journey where they meet with God, and they meet with him for 40 years. Now every day, some of you may know this, every day God provides for these people food that miraculously appears. Right? Some of you know what this is called. It's called manna, which translated roughly into Hebrew means, what is it? (laughs) What is it? They don't know what it's called. What is it? It's just manna. So it's, I always think it's sort of like one of those old school sort of comedy bits, like a Laurel and Hardy, you know? Did you have the what is it? What is it? I don't know. What is it? You know, I don't know how, that, this is my old timey motion. I don't know what that means. But there are these people every day and they don't know what to eat. There's nothing in there except God. And every day God provides for them this magical, mystical, sort of inexplicable food called what is it? And every day they eat it. Now, we're in... Their 40th year of wandering in the desert, in Numbers 21, says this, this is verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route uh, to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses, this is verse 5, and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? This I should say as a side note. This is a question the Israelites are asking Moses all the time. Like right at the very beginning of their journey out of Egypt, did you bring us out here to die? I mean, right away. So this is a pretty common question. Then continue. So uh, verse 5 here. Did you bring us out in Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. <laughs> Every day, miraculous food appears. There's enough to gather for that day. And there's even a double portion they gather on the sixth day. So on the seventh day, they can just hang out. Every day, this food appears. It's a, it's a miracle. And they're starting to say... You know, the, it's awesome. We crossed the Red Sea, there are the plagues, they're powerful. It's 39 years. 
40, we're in the 40th year, the same miraculous food. How about a little variety? <laughs> I don't know if you have a favorite food. I know um, I, when I used to be a high school pastor, I would always ask students when I was driving them in a van, I would say, okay, here's, here's the deal. You have to imagine that uh, I'm, I'm all-powerful and that I, I can make this thing, this scenario I'm about to describe, I can make it a reality. And I would say, you have to eat the same food for the rest of your life, but you get to choose it. It was just another way of asking what's your favorite food because people never answer, I don't know, I have so many favorite things. And you know, no, you get to choose the meal for the rest of your life. You can make it as big or as small as you want, but it's your meal you have to choose every single day. And, and my answer always which I should say, first of all, the most popular answer, surprisingly, was a chicken Caesar salad. I don't know why. But my own answer, my own answer, is that I am powerless against the forces of Kraft macaroni and cheese. I really, I mean, I feel like, you want me to, you want, if that's what manna is, I'm good for at least 37 years, probably. Now, my guess is that these people, having been, no matter what they choose, no matter what you were to choose, if you could choose your own way that manna tastes, the Bible describes it as tasting really good. But even then, you got to go, man, seriously, the what is it? We've had enough. How about something else? Now, God is moving these people, and they're imagining, probably, if you had been told, hey, I'm going to take you to the promised land, that you're probably thinking, all right, I'm ready for a you know, couple-week journey out in the desert. It'll be miserable for a little couple days, and then we'll be there. For 40 years. Hey, God, remember that promised land thing? I think Moses is, I don't, we're walking in a lot of circles out here. I think we must be getting close to, is there, is there something else going on here? You know, they go on for 40 years. They've been fed for 40 years in the desert where there's supposed to be nothing there and they meet with God. And they're supposed to be, and every day they get this food and they start saying, we don't like the food. The rescue is awesome, but the food, I'm kind of tired of it. Now, God's intention throughout all of the Bible is to bring people from captivity into freedom. To bring people who are captured, who are held over, who are overpowered by something else into freedom. That nothing would keep them captive whatsoever. And God gives freedom they had desired for 400 years. That means they, there was no alive person at the time of this exodus who had any working memory of freedom. Generation upon generation upon generation, generation upon generation. I mean, this is, to put it in perspective, the amount, it would be like saying, <clears throat> do you remember what the colonies, do any of you have any memory or family who remember what the colonies were like in early America? That's only, you know, not even 300 years, 300 years. I mean, right? This is, <laughs> this is crazy. Nobody has any working memory of freedom, and they've been desiring it forever, and they say, oh my gosh, you've given us freedom, and it's not good enough. If you want to flip back a couple chapters to Numbers 11, again, in starting in verse 4, there's these questions that begin to surface, and I said before that the Israelites are constantly saying, is this as good, is this all you got, God? Is this everything? Here's what it says, verse 4, if only we had meat to eat, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic, but now we've lost our appetite and we never see anything but this, what is it? Okay, now if you have your own Bible, why don't you do this? I want you to underline three words. At no cost. We remember how good the food was in Egypt. It didn't cost us anything except that we were captive slaves. Our whole lives were owned by Pharaoh. Remember how good the food was? There was fish and onions and leeks and melons. It was so delicious. It didn't cost us a thing. 
except your life. Every day the Pharaoh demanded that you belong to him and you did his will and didn't cost you anything to eat a meal. And the question that's unfolding for the Israelites in Numbers 11 and again in Numbers 21 is this question, which is the same one we have to face in this room today. Is it better to have a full stomach in captivity or to be hungry and be free? Is it better to have a full stomach in captivity or to be hungry and be free? There's this wonderful and beautiful and compelling picture about captivity because our stomach gets full. Is it for you? Is it a habit? Is it an addiction? Is it a behavior? Is it a bad relationship? Is it an obsession? Is it some kind of fantasy for a world that you cannot have right now that you think if I only had that it would be better? Do you have something that you fall back on which, in which you feel like you're captive but your stomach is full? Almost to the point where the captivity vanishes. What is it for you? In my own life as I was looking at this passage... And I, you know, this is sort of, I, I don't real. I was, as I was thinking about it, I'm like, I wonder what this looks like for me in my life. And I was sort of wrestling with it and I began to think back and forth. And there's a lot of things that could have come up. And what seemed to come to the surface was this thing. I was like, this is kind of embarrassing and it seems really not that big a deal, but it's a big deal to me. I sort of, I began to realize that my own full stomach, I have a very full stomach in captivity of, the peop- of making people like me. I have sort of the Willie Loman you know, death of a salesman, I just want to be well-liked kind of persona. I don't know if you're like me, and some of you are like, well, that's nothing wrong with being sort of liked. Well, I accepted this. That, might, that, that sort, of, sort of inner impetus to be well-liked is a pretty dangerous thing. Because it makes me decide to do things that are probably not the best for myself or my family. It makes me do things that, in other words, that I probably wouldn't do because I want to be admired and I want to be impressive. I want people to see me and go, that's wonderful. You're amazing. But that really isn't about God. That's about me. That's about me ultimately becoming my own object of worship. Do you know how dangerous that is for a pastor? <laughs> One who's supposed to say to people, hey, there's some things that God may want to do in your life that has nothing to do with me. And that may not make you like me, that's going to take some courage for me to say to you, but I really would rather have you like me. But if you like me, the stomach's full. What is it for you? What is that thing that you go, it's so much easier to be captive to this than to be free and to be hungry? And in the Bible, being captive, being a captive to something, and Dying are kind of on equal ground. In other words, to be a captive and to die are almost the same level of equal sort of badness. Now I'm going to read to you a very troubling passage. It's not going to make a whole lot of sense. If this is all we had in the entire Bible, you would go, I, this, I don't get it and I don't, I'm not sure I even want this. But it takes place in the middle of this grand narrative, the most compelling narrative for the story of the Israelite people, the Jews, to which Jesus begins to sort of adopt some of the language himself about this exodus from captivity to freedom. And there's this little moment that is going to be so confusing, and we're going to read it. 
All right, so remember, this, we're back to Numbers 21. The Israelites have been traveling, and they start saying, there's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable, what is it, food? And here they are, verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. It's kind of uplifting, isn't it? I mean, here's the scenario. Hey, we're rescuing you out of, rescuing you out of Egypt and taking you to this place called the Promised Land. It's going to be great. Now we're in the 40th year. They start saying, really, manna again, seriously? And then God goes, all right, here's the snakes. And people start dying. <laughs> what a wonderful verse. Put that on your, you know, memorize that one and put that on your dashboard of your car. Share it with your friends. <laughs> then God sent venomous snakes among them and the people, bit the people and many Israelites died. Wonderful. Let's all sing. <laughs> Let me give you a little bit of insight, and this may help, it may not. It's still a confusing verse. There's the word sent in Hebrew could mean a couple of things. It could mean sent, like actually sending, you know, ushering into. But it also could mean this, to let go, to release. So in some sense, you have this. There's God walking with his people, protecting them in some capacity. And they start saying, you know, we're kind of tired of the way you're doing this rescue operation. And he says, okay. Okay. I don't have to be a part of this. And the snakes come in and start biting people. It's like this. My family and I, actually coming out of Rooted, we were like, you know, we got to be serious about our debt. So we're going to deal with that. And so we started looking at things we could cut, you know, from our own sort of, you know, trying to be, you know, more responsible with our finances and stuff. We're like, we're going to cut all our debt. We're going to do what we can. So um, one of the things we looked at was we looked at our, our yard and we went, we have a tiny yard and we pay a guy to come here and mow our tiny little pin or little lawn. And we pay him every single month to do that. And what if... We could do that. I mean, how hard could that be, right? So we, we fire him, and I have this conversation. I, I give, the, of course, our gardener way too much information. Hey, we're consolidating our debt and really trying to deal with some things, and I just want to let you know it's not personal. And he's like, I don't really care. Okay, so I'm like, but anyway, the bottom line is we're going to take a little break from your services. Okay, and he's like, okay. You know, I'm like way over. He's like, people don't, you know, anyway. So I tell him way more than he needs to know. And I start, and we start thinking, we're going to take care of our own garden. How hard could this be? And pretty soon, we have, we have in our yard... <laughs> A harvest of weeds. It's really kind of remarkable how fast these things grow. Um, and particularly in our own yard, because HOA is like, hey, did you guys want to deal with the weeds at all? Or are you guys, what's the plan? So last Monday, it took us three hours to pull weeds from our tiny little yard. And, um, and we were like, hey, kids, we have a really fun project. Who wants to come out and pull weeds? Woo! They're like, Dad, it hurts my fingers. I know, it's like fiberglass. It's like kind of, it's really a fun game we play where you see how much you can take. And, you know, so the kids are pulling the weeds and we're pulling the weeds out. And for three hours we did it, and we were kind of looking at each other like, is this, can we do this? How much is it worth us? How much, how much is our day worth to us to have to not do this every so often? And the point is this, that in some level, the Israelites are saying the same kind of thing. Really, what are you kind of doing here? I mean, this is, you brought us out here, and we're really kind of tired of it. We can kind of handle it on our own. And God goes, okay, here you go. You want to be rescued, but you don't want to be rescued in the way that I plan to rescue you, so go ahead on your own. Enjoy the desert, see the sights, have a great time. And all of a sudden, the snakes begin to bite these people, and they say something else. Now, the question we sort of have to wrestle with, again, is, first of all, how easy is it to empathize with the Israelites? And really, they've been out there, they have, they have two choices. They can go back and be a slave to Pharaoh... And live in captivity and have all, they have all the food they want. 
Or they can be free and be out in the desert and die with God out there. The snakes are biting people. It's hot. It's miserable. They eat the same, what is it, every single day. And they have this choice. Which is really the better of the two options? There's a lot of questions in this passage. A lot of things do not make sense. And what you get is this picture of this really majestic God, but he's not real tame. He doesn't seem to do things the way we want him to do. And here we are in verse 7. So here's what happens. Numbers 21, verse 7. The people came to Moses, who's the sort of go-between between the people and God, and, he, and they say, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now what do they do in this moment? They remember something here. I mean, they remember who their rescuer is. It's not them. And it's not someone else but on their terms. And it's definitely this sort of rescue and this freedom is not the same thing as being held captive. In fact, it's harder. You talk to anybody who's come out of a life of addiction, they'll tell you the captivity was really easy to be in. And coming out of captivity, they felt the hunger of what it, they felt the sort of pull back to this life that was captive where their stomach was full. And there's there's this walking away from this captive life which is so much harder. So here's what Moses does. What God says to Moses, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, this is actually kind of comical. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. It's bizarre, right? <laughs> the people are like, oh God, we're tired of the what is it every single day for 40 years. Take it away from it. And then God goes, and then snakes start biting them. And then they pray, oh God, we were wrong. We were sinning. We shouldn't have said this against you and Moses. Please, please take the snakes away. And then God goes, okay, make a snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who gets bitten, just take a look at the pole. Oh, snake bit me. Oh, come on over. There's a pole right here. You just take a look at it. <laughs> My friend, you know, tell your friends, if anyone get, excuse me, announcement, anybody out here gets bit by a snake, just come take a look at the pole. I mean, you have to imagine, Moses has to make this announcement to the people. I have a plan. Come to the snake and look at the rescue snake and it will save your life. Really? We have to look at the re- Yes, come to the rescue. Now, does God, does God hear their prayer? Yes. They pray, God, take the snakes away. But he doesn't take the snakes away. He gives them a means by which they could be rescued that was beyond their own power. And every time that someone got bit by a snake, a deadly snake, they come to the rescue snake, the bronze snake on this, on this pole. Bizarre. And the question we, we wonder in our own lives is, why doesn't God just take the snakes away? Because this implication is that more people are going to get bitten by snakes. We wonder, why does he just take the snakes away? God, they, they said the thing, they're sorry, why don't you just no longer have snakes happening? Because God knows what everybody in this room knows. That if there were no snakes, there would be no need for God. So people would go, we don't need him. Their memories are short. This is sort of the story of all the people in the Bible, is this picture of God remembers and people forget, and there is this sort of, there's this sort of image emerging. That the ultimate rescue for God's people isn't a snake-free desert. 
The ultimate rescue that's sort of becoming apparent for these people is that their life would be connected with God. That they would belong to God and he would belong to them. That is the picture of the life that's being described here. Now, is it possible that God would use whatever means he needs for those people to move them back to himself? Yeah. The writer is saying, in essence, there is no life in the present or in the future without God. If you want to have a real rescue, the life that God intended you to have, it's going to have to be with God. And every time someone got bitten, they would look at the snake. Go, we didn't rescue ourselves. God did this. I warned you this is going to be a little uncomfortable. Some of you are going, are you saying, are, are you saying God will use pain to get my attention? Yeah. I wish I wasn't saying that. I wish that wasn't the case. Seemingly, it's as if the most painful moments in our life are the moments when we start saying, you know what, I really need to be rescued. I really need to depend on something other than myself to pull me out of this. This is a story about God's people losing their first love, about losing their way. They're just, they're, they call out God as their own God. God, you're our God and we're your people. And then they start saying, you're not really who you said you were. They remembered a life in the desert. They remembered a life without having to depend on anything, without having to depend on God at all. It's a life where every day a slave owner, in order to keep the slave process going, the building process going, gave them food and shelter. And somehow that looked better than the freedom that God was calling them to live in. If you're like me, if you grew up, maybe if you grew up in the church, you have this picture of our own life and our own intimacy with God, our own intimacy with Jesus is this picture where at some moment we're really close with him and there's this slow, for most of us, there's this slow sort of I no longer really walk and pretty soon we wonder how we got to the place where we are. And usually what snaps us back, if you're like me, what snaps us back to God is a moment of pain. Wish it wasn't the case. I wish there was another way that it would sort of work out that way. But pain hits all of us in our lives. Those of us who imagine that we kind of deserve it, those of us who imagine that we don't deserve it, the good, the innocent, the bad, everybody encounters pain. And I wish there was some way or another that it didn't always happen that way. But this is the way God tends to utilize pain to bring us back to himself. The one thing the Israelites could have done is the one thing they desired. The one thing they could have done in their own power is say, Moses, thanks a lot. It's been great. 40 years. Been a long time. You've been lost for a little bit. We kind of tolerated that for the first, you know, however long. We're going back to Egypt because we're hungry and we're tired of this. They could have walked back there and said, we'd rather belong to Pharaoh. But the one thing, the more difficult thing they could have done is to trust God to do for themselves what they could not do on their own, which is to be rescued. To have life. 1,500 years later after the story about Jesus is having a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. And Jesus is explaining to this guy, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a religious leader at the time, and he's explaining to, Jesus is explaining to him, here's who I am. And Jesus uses a royal title for himself, the Son of Man, and he's beginning to explain, this is who I am, this is kind of what I'm like. And he connects back to the story in Numbers 21. In a moment, we're going to take communion. Ushers are going to go grab some stuff, they're going to be ready in a second, but I want you to hear why we're going to take communion. Look what it says in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. It says this, Just as Moses 
lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life in Him. Now some translations say the Son of Man must be exalted. In other words, there's this symbol of death, whether it's in snake form or Roman cross form, this critical sort of um, brutal sort of symbol of, of death. And there is this picture that says, whoever needs a rescue and comes to the, that which is lifted up, Jesus draws this analogy between himself and the snake on the pole and says, anyone who wants life in the present and in the future, come to me. He says, just as Moses lifted up a snake, when people would encounter pain in their present and in their future, they would come to him and they would be rescued. He says, just like that. Nicodemus would have known the story. And he says, just like that, people must come to the Son of Man who will be lifted up on a cross. This powerful symbol of death. And they'll be given life and freedom. What we're going to do is, we're going to sing in a second. I'm going to give you a moment to kind of consider where you are captive in your own life, where you think to yourself, gosh, it would be great if I could be back there with a full stomach in captivity. Where in your life are you encountering the pain where you need a rescue, where God's ultimate sort of work in your life is to bring you back to him? So all the songs happen, we're going to pass out some communion elements. Why don't you hold on to those things and we'll take communion together in a moment. All right?